0: Everybody, good morning. Hi, Redeemers, friends, family. I'll do the exciting stuff at the very end of the service. Sorry, we're going to change that right now. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, My name's Billy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemers, and we've got a great team of pastors and staff and elders that serve this family. And I'm happy that you're here. We've been praying for you. Now, if you would please, let's grab those Bibles and meet me. Meet me in Nehemiah chapter two, please. Nehemiah chapter two. This is near the books of Ezra and Esther in the Old Testament. And if you're just joining us, again, welcome. We're working our way through this book called Nehemiah. And this book is about a lot of things. There's a lot in here. But one of the main themes about this book is how God uses good leadership to fix broken things. Good leadership to fix broken things. Um, That's what it takes when something's broken. Sometimes an unskilled leader We'll try to fix something broken, and then it becomes more broken. It's worser than it was. Yeah, and God, God shows us though how good leadership can just really make an impact for the positive. And in Anias, Maya's case, it's three broken things. There's a broken wall. There's broken spirits, and then there's broken identities in people. And so Lord is going to use this guy. He did. Uh, is amazing. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's a marketplace leader. And uh, he's, he's rebuilding a wall around Jerusalem, and he's helping to revitalize worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's also helping to restore the identity of the people of God. So very good things here. Now, before we, we just jump into where we left off last week, I want to talk about walls for a second. Can we talk about walls for a moment? Um, so there's good walls and bad walls. Good walls and bad walls. Say that to your neighbor. Good walls and bad walls. Good walls, bad walls. So in the Bible, in the Bible you'll see walls mentioned, and most of the time it's a good wall, meaning walls are there. it's about protection, it's about uh, uh, shielding, it's about guarding and defending. Good walls represent a place for shelter, a place for formation. And this is both literal and and symbolic in the scriptures we see that there's symbolically good walls like family family is a good wall a good family is a good wall or church is a good wall actually in the book of proverbs it speaks of healthy personal disciplines as being a good wall for an individual a feature of all good walls is gates a good wall has gates if you have a good wall with no gates, we call that a prison, okay? Uh, and that's not good, necessarily. So, good walls have gates, and gates allow for growth, gates allow for flex, gates allow for freedom to come and go. And so, we could say it this way on your handout good walls protect us and encourage our freedom at the same time. Good walls do both of these things. That's the same with a good family. A good family protects and then encourages freedom and growth. A good church does this, good parents. Good habits, good government encourages growth and protects. Good police forces do this, right? You can apply this in so many ways. Good walls. Interestingly, Jesus picks up on this wall terminology in the, in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, for example, people keep asking him, Jesus, who are you? You're tripping us out. We don't know how to categorize you. And so he teaches them over and over again about himself and who he is and what he came to do. And this is one of the things he says. He says, you want to know who I am? I am the gate. This is like a door or a gate in a wall. I am the gate, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out. Uh, There you go, in and out. It's in the Bible, okay? This is a godly restaurant. You should eat there. That's not... Okay, in and out and find pasture. The thief, though, the devil, comes only to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so Jesus is the gate, like the gate in the wall. And, and it's through him that we have these things like eternal life and peace and beauty and redemption and forgiveness and justification. And these things that we want meaning and purpose in our life. It's, it's something that we desire and it's through Christ. He's our gate, the gate. And it's through him. That's how we, you, you know, in other words, by by implication, you can't just punch your own hole in the wall and just believe whatever you want. And as long as you're sincere, you can get through. No, he's the gate. There's the definite article there. You can't just climb over the wall. And so we have this, this beautiful imagery and we have Jesus using good wall uh, language to describe himself. So that's a good wall. But sometimes in the Bible, walls are negative. They're, they're, they're bad walls. They're bad. They, they are symbols of division and exclusivity. So you could say on your handout, you could fill this in, bad walls divide us and encourage isolation. And does this make sense to you, by the way? I think that's pretty, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Walls are barriers, bad barriers between people. Um, walls are constructed you stay on your side man I don't want you by me and you don't want me by you and we're not this you know we're we we do not get along and you know there's issues so let's just stay separate and that's a bad wall in many cases in in relationship uh, like in pastoral counseling and in therapy when we have couples come in many times you'll hear this I feel like there's a wall between me and my spouse I don't know how the wall get there, got there. It just showed up, and it's, we're, just, we're divided, we're separate. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever heard that or maybe said that? Uh, and so, so that's a bad wall, and oftentimes what we discover is the, the spouses built the wall unintentionally, and so we try to apply biblical principles and healing to, uh, to, to bring them together again. Um, another type of bad wall. Um, racism is a type of a bad wall, that is, is we need to tear that down uh, where one group has an, a, a superiority uh, inherently over another. Um, bad walls encourage isolation and, and hatred and, and the wall didn't cause that. It's just the wall enables that. It facilitates that. So bad walls, good walls. Here's the teaching. We got to know the difference between a bad wall and a good wall and you can't find out listening to the media, Okay. The media is not going to tell you the right answer of if a wall that you're encountering is a good one or a bad one. You know what it is? This is going to tell you right here, the scriptures. You cannot get your clues and clues on, cues and clues on this from the media and from popular culture because it is jacked up and they're going to tell you the opposite. And so we go to scripture. And, and you shouldn't also just say, well, because there are bad walls out there, let's tear down all walls just in case somebody gets offended or their feelings hurt, that there's a wall there. That's not a good idea either. And I know you see this. I see this happening in our society so much, so often at an alarming rate. For example, there has existed a really good wall between the boys' bathroom and the girls' bathroom. And there are a lot of people who want to tear that wall down for some reason. And it's like, no, are you insane? That's insanity. That wall is there to not oppress someone or to not self-actualize their identity. That's there to protect us. That's there to provide security and nurturing as we grow. And, And that not just as we grow, but there's a good wall between the men's locker room and the women's locker room. Let's keep that wall. I don't get it. People want to tear down that wall, burn it down, and then anybody who says otherwise, they want to burn the person down and cancel them. And this is an insanely terrible idea. There are good walls and bad walls. Instead of of just getting rid of all the walls, let's just learn to identify the bad ones and tear them down. How about that as an idea? I'm a genius! (laughs) By the way, uh, this is what Jesus did, okay? Jesus, the gospel, tears down bad walls and, and keeps the good walls. We have a passage about this actually directly in Ephesians. This is in the New Testament. This is not in Nehemiah. It's in Ephesians 2. The apostle Paul says this about Jesus. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one. This is groups of people. He has unified groups of people. How? He has broken down in his flesh by the cross the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility By abolishing the law of commandments um, expressed in ordinances, it keeps going, so that he uh, may create in himself one new person in place of two divided people. There's one new person, people making peace, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is this? This There's a lot of words. What's Paul saying? The bad wall, Jesus dismantled at the cross. There's a bad wall that encourages isolation between us and the Lord, the wall of our sin. We're separated by our sin, a wall of sin. Jesus came along and he took care of that. There's also a bad wall that separates people, sinful people that don't like each other just because, no good reason, just because of skin or it's different or come from a different, you know, uh, economic place or whatever. Jesus is like, no, we're just going to make one equal people in his church and one church that is in communion with God. And all these walls go down. This is the gospel. This is a good thing. Now, good walls, bad walls. Notice in these verses, there's a mention of the enemy, the devil. And this is what we need to know. The enemy loves to tear down the good walls and build up the bad walls. So if you see a good wall coming down, who's behind it? It's the enemy ultimately behind that. And if you see a bad wall coming up, it's, a, it's the enemy behind that whole project. And we need to, we need to come against that spiritually, as God's people. This is what he does. This is what the devil does. He's been doing this since the fall, since Genesis 3. The enemy loves to tear down walls that previously kept people safe. This is why he loves to tear down families. He loves to tear down marriages. He loves to tear down churches and governments and all these things. And that's why he he can come in. There's no walls. He can just break us and hurt us. Jesus, many of us come from these broken places, Many of us come from broken families and divorces and things where we've been hurt. Yeah, and Jesus wants to repair and fix this. He wants to come in and minister to us because he wants us safe. He wants us to be able to be nurtured. He wants to be your wall and your gate and your defender. This is the gospel. So we need to keep this in mind, friends, as we work our way through Nehemiah, because there's the narrative, the story, the account of Nehemiah, and the teachings, and then there's a teaching underneath the teaching, and let's get both as we go through this, the teaching and then the teaching underneath the teaching. So let's go right to the teaching now, because in Nehemiah, we have a good kind of wall, the wall that you want to have, the protective wall, but it's broken, as we've learned, and it's in ruins. Let's go to verse 9, chapter 2. This is where we left off. And remember, Nehemiah is writing in the first person here, so these are his memoirs. So then I, Nehemiah, came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me, uh, excuse me, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Remember from last week, Nehemiah's in the city of Susa at the seasonal palace of Artaxerxes. He's asking to go to Jerusalem. It's about a 900 mile journey. And he asks his boss, Artaxerxes Legamonus, to give him letters, give him passports so that he could have safe travel through the regional governing authorities on the way from Susa to Jerusalem. And he's got his documents. He's got his papers. And he's actually got a little uh, little army with him. The king uh, sent him with all of the, the necessary accoutrements to, to make the journey. Now, that's what that says. Now, verse 10. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Nehemiah, he's on his way. He's not even there yet. And there's some dudes who don't like what he's doing. And their names are Sanballat and Tobiah, two dudes that don't like, they haven't met him yet. They've never had a conversation with Nehemiah. They just heard about it and they hate it. Now we're going to meet these guys again in this chapter and again in chapter four and later in the book. But here's what I want us to keep in mind. This is kind of an initial thing and, and it's about good leadership. Remember good leadership required to heal brokenness. Good leaders expect opposition. Opposition. Everybody say opposition. Good leaders know opposition is coming. They expect it. They prepare for it. They pray about it. And the fact is, guys, there will always be people who oppose you no matter what you do. And there will always be circumstances that oppose you no matter what you do. Even if you're doing God's word and God's will. In fact, sometimes more so. The opposition shows its head, and it's stronger against you even more so. Now, good leaders don't go looking for trouble. We don't go stirring up trouble where it ain't no trouble to have, right? right? We don't purposely stir up confrontation and resistance. We, we call this pugilistic leadership. That's a, that's a bit of a word. Do you know the word pugilistic or pugilist? you know this word? It's a fancy word for boxer. A boxer, Mike Tyson or these boxers, they're, they're pugilists, and a pugilistic leader is one who is quarrelsome and goes to look for a fight. The Bible says, don't be a pugilistic leader, so, so don't go looking for trouble, but you should expect trouble. Now, good ideas are not going to provide an immunity to opposition. Good ideas will still incur opposition, even if you have the best idea ever. It's the greatest idea. Somebody is not gonna like it. Can someone just nod or just say amen or just like, Man, that's, yeah, that's sad but true, sad but true, yeah? Okay, here's a couple of famous examples from history. Uh, 1876, look at this. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication The device is inherently of no value to us. Some guy said that in 1876. Survey says, You got it wrong, bro. Bad. I mean, not a good take. Next one. How about this? I have to say this in a British accent. I do not believe the introduction of motor cars will ever affect the riding of horses, says Mr. Scott Montague, Minister of Parliament in 1903. Survey says... on Scott you doofus okay last one how about this there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home <laughs> Ken Olson survey says Please. come on Ken I mean these are some of the best ideas uh, and and there was resistance there was people who are known in history because they were opposed to good ideas so biblically there's opposition. Now there's sources of opposition. I want to give you three sources. There are more than this. And I didn't put these on your notes. So you can just kind of do this the old fashioned way like we used to do uh, and just write them down. So there's first one is spiritual opposition. There are spiritual entities. The scriptures tells us these are demons and spiritual beings. There's powers and evil forces that hate God and that hate God's children and that hate God's ways and God's thoughts and God's word and God's plans they hate God and the Bible says it's clear that this world the world that we see taste touch and smell there's a different world there's another world and if we could have like a zipper that gets us between we could just unzip it and we could we could just see like the unseen spiritual world and some of the entities that are created are they hate God and they're against him and Christians know this. They know that we have spiritual opposition. There's a story I read years ago about, I think it was a sound guy, the main sound guy for ACDC or Motley Crue. Um, and we're not talking about those bands right now, okay? He went on tour with them and he worked for them. And then the guy becomes a Christian and he starts serving as a sound guy in his smaller church. And he could not believe the amount. Of technical difficulties that they encountered in his small church the gremlins it was just crazy he's like I never encountered the random the randomness in the sound systems on tour with ACDC than I did here in my small church and he concluded that it was because the spiritual opposition factor was so heightened in his church and so this is a thing this is a thing spiritual opposition Now, second one is human opposition, because there are people who hate God and who hate his plans and his children and his ways, his thoughts. Uh, Or there are people who indirectly, they're maybe not, they don't like even know about God or God's people. They just don't like stuff that God likes. So there are people that have a completely different agenda than God's agenda. And this is human opposition. And we heard some, from some, these guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, other dudes. And these guys, we think they lived around Jerusalem and they operated, they were leaders, maybe regional people, and they got threatened. They did not want God's people to improve. They, they felt that probably their power would be diminished. And so they stood against what God wanted. They were humans. And this is a thing as well. And the third one is, I'm going to call it internal opposition. And it's, it's human opposition, but it's, it comes from Christians. It comes from God's people. And this is a thing. And this is usually well-meaning believers who have a difference of opinion or they just don't see eye to eye and they're just against something that God is doing. And usually, this is something in churches, this is something in ministries, and this, we're on the same team. But it's like there's non-agreement, and so there's pushback and resistance, and sometimes that's not what God wants, and this is a real thing. Usually i found that it's mostly this, that when Christians become stubborn around what the Lord is doing in their, in their church or something, it's just that they're being resistant to change. It's a change, and people don't like change. Christians don't like change. Have you noticed this? People, we haven't done it that way before. And you're just like, okay, we're not changing our theology. We're not changing our beliefs, but we may be changing some methodology because we're married to our theology, but we're not married to our methodology. And so that's okay. And so change can be difficult. So resistance to changing methods is what happens. This is internal opposition. Now, there's three of these. There's more, but we approach them differently. We don't treat number three the same way we treat number two. So there's different ways that we work through this with our brothers and sisters than we do certainly with spiritual. You know, you don't, rebuke, you don't rebuke a brother in the Lord who's genuinely struggling with change the same way you rebuke a devil. Wow, I thought somebody would say amen, but I just, okay. Here's the point. There will be opposition. Good leaders know about this and they start praying about it even before it surfaces and we're just ready for it. Okay, that's what's happening here. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. So I, Nehemiah, I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Ah, he makes it. Woo, yes. Keep going. Yeah, he made it. All right, now the work begins. Then I arose in the night. I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the spring gate and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So here we see something interesting. So Nehemiah, it's really interesting. Like he gets there, he's got a small army, he's got king's paperwork, and there's absolutely no splash There's no zest to this. It is totally chill. He comes in almost unannounced and almost unnoticed. And it's really the opposite of, I think, what we see in marketing today when you want to make a big change and make a big project you you know you rally the troops and you get the press and you have the you know the big parties and you get the Costco uh food and you got everything and it's just awesome and it's you know and let's make it and then you've got the the, the social media people there and you just make a big to do about it and and Nehemiah doesn't do any of this he's just super chill he slips into town he doesn't say anything he's quiet he's not talking And so this is something that I think you're probably not going to read in in many leadership books, and that's this. Good leadership, a lot of times, is about keeping your mouth shut. Sometimes the best thing a leader can do is shut your pie hole, okay? Shut up. Shut, no, shut. Close the lips. Stop talking. Be quiet. Now let's say that a little nicer. Good leaders on your handout don't over talk. (laughs) They don't over talk. In general in leadership, my first degree at Fuller was in leadership, and in general the emphasis on the leader and leadership development is oratory skills, is vision casting skills. Is communication skills. And that's not a bad thing. Those are necessary things. But usually you don't learn shut up skills. So, what if we as leaders practiced our shut up skills as much as our vision casting skills? We would be good leaders. We would be better leaders. And this is what Nehemiah is teaching us. Good leaders know when to be quiet. And there's lots of passages there on your notes. Good leaders listen to others. And when you're listening, you're not talking, you're silent. Good leaders know to talk less. Um, this is this is a personal story. I, I in, in a previous church, a big church, I worked at um, thousands of people on a weekend, and there was a, a meeting, a leadership team meeting that we had. We gathered at one of the campuses, I think on Tuesdays, and it was the guys and gals who ran the church. And there was about ten or twelve of us in the room, and we talked about things. And it was every week for years and years. This was the flow, but the meeting for me, I did not enjoy because there was one guy in there who would not shut up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody have a meeting that you have to go to where there's one person who literally, who just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks, and, talk, and just you're just like, wow, bro, shut shut up, shut up. You can't even get a word in to tell him to shut up because he's talking, right? And it just kills the meeting. He's over talking. And in this case, we had leaders from all of different parts of the church and he had by far the smallest ministry in the room. So the guy with the least results did the most talking. No, 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 Lord. Like, like it's just terrible. It's just terrible. So don't be that leader. Don't be that guy, that gal who has the least Results, but who says the most words in meetings because you will murder the fun of life. (laughs) Now, for me, uh, I have to watch myself. Okay, so now I'm going to get personal on this side because sometimes I talk too much and it's usually when I get excited. Leaders sometimes get excited about the things that we're going to do and the things that we've got planned and so we're just excited and we want to tell people about it. We want to pull people aside and say, oh my goodness, look at this thing that we're going to do. We're about to launch this project. You're going to get information on the first hand and you're just like, I'm ex- I get excited and I want to tell people and I want to bring people into the loop. I want to get some, you know, building coalitions. I want to build excitement and stuff and so sometimes in the plaza, you'll see me and I'm talking really fast and then the poor person is just like, I just want to get a donut. Can I just Just leave? I mean, (laughs) stop talking. (laughs) So we struggle. I struggle with this. So I have to watch. I have to pump the brakes. Pump the brakes, Billy. Shut your mouth. Be quiet. Let the person get the coffee. Okay. So we have all things to work on. We can learn here. Now, learning from Nehemiah. He doesn't say much here. No one knows where he goes. He's so assuming. Like people are like, hey, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where did Nehemiah go? Where'd the guy from Susa go? And he's like, he just, I thought he was at your house. I thought he was at staying with you. No, I thought he was staying with you. And what he's doing is just fascinating. He slips out in the middle of the night. And he's walking the wall. He's walking all around the wall. Now, if anybody saw him in the daytime doing this, they would immediately know what he was up to. They would be like, because he'd be out with there with his little pad. He's like, okay, well, this gate is worse off than we thought. And, and, and people would know. And, and he didn't want people to know yet. He wasn't ready to talk about it publicly. So he goes out in the middle of the night. he's just got a couple people from his staff and he's just walking the wall and this is what good leaders do he needs to see what's what for himself good leaders assess the needs firsthand of course we learned that nehemiah learned about the destruction of the wall from his brother a very good source and he believed that and it was a good report but now he's there and he needs to see the situation for himself he needs to assess it he needs to understand and look at it. How bad is it? Or how good is it? In some cases, we just read, the wall is so destroyed, he couldn't get his, his, his animal around it. It's like he had to go a different way, or it's implied that maybe he, he went the other way all the way around and then went back, right? He had to get a feel for it. He had to understand it. He had to look at it with his own eyes, his own eyeballs. It's one thing to see something through the eyes of another person, even a trusted source, but it's another thing to see it for yourself. And this is what good leadership does. We, we look at, we get information and then we actually verify it's trust, but verify. Good leadership does this. Good leadership walks the wall. Sometimes we'll say this in church work. Well, what are you up to? And you just say, I'm walking the wall. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's kind of a Christianese term, but now you know what it means. Or maybe you can even incorporate it with your Christian friends and they'll know what you mean. (laughs) I'm walking the wall. I'm walking the wall. I need to see how good the situation is, how bad the situation is. And this is what good leaders do. Now, my buddy Joe, my best friend Joe, some of you have met him. He came and spoke for Yobo last year. He works for... um, IJM, International Justice Mission. He lives in San Diego. And he got a bad doctor. He got a negative doctor's report. He needed open heart surgery. This was just a few months ago. And it was intense. Like, he has a bad ticker. And he's going to die if he doesn't get this surgery. And it's intense. And so I'm praying with him. He's kind of scared. He's a man of faith, but he's like, Billy, is this it? And we're talking and we're praying on the phone. And he's got other friends. And IJM, the whole organization, was praying for him. And so he had all the MRIs and the EKGs and the scans and the the surgeon, whose name was Sam, was a good surgeon, did exactly what Nehemiah is, is doing and showing is that he said, Joe, Sam, the surgeon, Joe, I've got all this data, but I'm not gonna see how bad it is until I go in there and I crack your chest open. I gotta see it for myself and then we're gonna know exactly what I need to do. And so that's what happened a couple weeks ago. And we were praying for him. And it was awesome because Sam, Sam was inc- incredible, right? After the surgery, he's like, Joe, I'm so glad that I got to get in there and look at it with his genius, nerdy surgeon eyes. And he saw, he's like, I saw some stuff and I had, that the scans didn't pick up and I had to fix it. And he fixed Joe's valve in his heart. And now it's working great. And this guy did it. He saved Joe's life. And this is the same process. We apply this process in all types of, of situations, in all types of jobs. Nehemiah, walk the wall. Check it out for yourself. See, oh, I didn't notice this before. Oh, this is better than I thought. Great. Oh, this is worse than I thought. Also great. Different kind of great. Now, this doesn't say this in the text, but I'm going to just add this as my own thought. Part of Nehemiah's walking the wall, I believe, is what he's doing is verifying if his earlier estimates were accurate and he's noting the changes. Remember last week, Nehemiah had presented an estimation of the project completion timeframe and he had materials estimates that he presented to his, his boss, Artaxerxes. Do you remember this? Okay, so, and so I think he had that. And so I think what he's doing is, I need to know if, if, if I was off, And if any adjustments he had, he was 900 miles away. Now he's, you know, five feet away. And so he had to plan and then he had to adjust based on what was actually there. And this is what good leadership does, guys. This is so good. Good leaders don't assume their planning is perfect. By all means, plan, make plans, make strategies and make them as good as you can, but also keep them flexible because good leaders plan and then they adjust based on the changing circumstance planning and adjustments as needed. That's what great leaders do. Great generals do this in the in the armed forces. They plan out a battle strategy and they have it. And then the battle's happening and then the information comes back. Oh, you, you know what? There's some factors we didn't know about. And so they change midstream the battle plan so that they can win the battle. This is what good g- generals do. Good chefs do this. Good chefs. What do good chefs do? They plan a menu, right? But then they got to go to the store and sometimes the ingredients are not what they thought they were going to be They're not very good. These mushrooms don't look very good. They're gross. They're slimy. So we're going to pull this off the menu because good chefs don't kill people. Okay. That's a good thing. (laughs) Be a good chef. Don't kill people, but you have a menu and then you make the, uh, make the adjustments based on what's available. That's a good, that's a good strategy. The apostle Paul did this. He wasn't so rigid with his own planning. It's very subtle, but it's in two of his letters in first Corinthians in the new Testament. He tells the church at Corinth in chapter 16, hey guys, I'm planning on going to Macedonia. And and, and Paul would do this in his letters. He would write little personal notes and have some plans and stuff so that the church could pray for him. But it turns out he didn't make it to Macedonia. And then in 2 Corinthians, the next letter that we have, he writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, guys. didn't I didn't make it to Macedonia it was no fault of his own but what had happened is some critics arose some opposers came forward and started questioning Paul's character well he's not a man of his word he said he was going to Macedonia and he didn't go so therefore don't listen to Paul because he has bad character and he has to kind of defend himself and he's like guys chill out I mean, this happened, I couldn't go. I, I still wanna go, but I couldn't go. So let's not, let's not go to level five, you know, opposition on me. Let's have some flexibility in leadership. And this is because God is in the planning and he's in the assessing and he's in the adjusting phases of life. And this is what good leaders do. God's in every step. Okay, let me go one more uh, passage. There's a little bit here left, Verse 17. Nehemiah is ready to reveal. He says, Then I said to them, them is, them is the core. He finally gets everybody in the room. He's like, Okay, guys, let's go. I got, I hear, I'm going to tell you what I'm here for. So everybody shows up. It was a good meeting, it's a big meeting. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that, had spoke, that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Oh, awesome, awesome day at church. Yes, verse 19. But when Sanballat, remember that guy? Remember who he was? And Tobiah, and then a new guy, Geshem, the Arab heard of it. What did they do? They jeered at us and despised us and said, said, what is this thing you're doing? This little thing, what are you doing? Are you in rebellion against the king? I know, they're annoying, aren't they? Little mealy mouth. that's what it was (laughs) then I replied to them the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem bam Shut them down. Mic drop. Now, there's a lot here. I've already gone over time. But unlike most of these sermons, I'm just going to finish this one and I'm going to just we go over time for a minute or two or five or ten. Okay, so look at this. Verse 17. He's at the big meeting, the core meeting, the church is there, everybody's there. First thing he says, you see the trouble we are in. You see it, don't you? You do see it, right? And he's pointing to the wall and the burnt-out gates. Why is he doing this? So here's, I think this is my theory. I think he's doing this because God's people had gotten so used to the brokenness of the wall and the burned out gates that they didn't even see it anymore. It was just part of the landscape. The level of brokenness and disrepair had become just normal and so they went to work every day and they and they just you know they're they're commuting or whatever and it's they didn't even see it anymore and this is actually a thing that can happen isn't it we we can get so used to something that's not good and it's just hiding in plain sight and it's right there and then we just get desensitized and we just don't see it anymore is this a thing? Has this ever happened to you? This is so, You can apply this a lot of ways. I mean, if you've if you got a teenager, go into their bedroom, okay? I mean, just be forewarned. You never know what's going to be in there. But a lot of times you go in there, and there's been a pile of clothes in the corner since the summer, and it's disgusting, and it's piled up, and the jeans are now standing upright where they weren't before. And it's like, wow, how did that happen? It's this, the, like the little fungus is just like, and, 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 and the kid doesn't notice And it smells, and you're just like, wow, this is like, boy, this is toxic in here. And they're like, "What? What? I don't smell nothing. I don't smell nothing. And you're like, oh my goodness. And it takes someone from the outside to come in and point out, you know, bro, like, did you ever know what a washing machine was, right? And so let me introduce you to this thing. Uh, And I'm sure there was some people opposed to that uh, invention too, yeah? But it's a good thing. (laughs) Or you're like, you go to, you go to like, like Look for a house and you go and maybe it's got some property in the, the previous owner, the guy's selling the house with people and they got like six trailers from Cousin Eddie and a pile of trash and there's like a, a burned out RV over there and you're just like, wow, there's a lot to do here. And the owner's like, what, what are you talking about? Asking full price and you're like, come on, man. It's gonna take me hundred grand just to, yeah, okay. <laughs> Haul all your crap off. And they're like, what crap? Okay, so you get what I'm saying? And I said crap in church twice, now three times. (laughs) Thank you, Carla, I didn't know that. I'm I'm learning about you people. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. But you get used to it. So he does what good leaders do. This is so good. He points out what everybody else had, had just stopped seeing. He stopped seeing it. People didn't see it. They got blind to it. He's like, you guys, 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 what are you here for? Well, look, and he just point and they're like, what? What are you, what are you pointing at? The wall, it's broken. Oh, let's fix it. Let's fix it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been busted down a long time. It's time. It's time to fix it. It's time to fix that wall. It's time to get rid of that brokenness. It's time to get rid of Carla's uncle's refrigerator. Uh, (laughs) 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 Last thought the opposition shows up again right when the vision cast happens, right before work starts, and it comes. And notice Nehemiah's response. He doesn't pull out the papers. The accusation was, are you, gonna, are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah doesn't show him the papers from Artaxerxes because that's, I think, no, I'm not. Here it is. Shut your mouth. He doesn't do that. I love this. I love this about Nehemiah. I just love this guy. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to hang out with Nehemiah a bit right after C.S. Lewis. Uh, I don't know. Jesus first, though, right? Okay, so, I mean, he's like, God sent me. First of all, I already told you guys about the king. I, I'm good. The king is good. He doesn't go to their level. He tells them, God sent me. God wants this wall rebuilt. We're going to do it. And so he's appealing to not the king of Persia, he's appealing to the king of heaven. And I'm not saying he's, he shouldn't ever do this, but his inclination was to trust God first. Before his human authority, he trusts his spiritual authority, and that is God in heaven. Oh, that's good leadership. Good, good leadership. This is what good leaders do. Yes, we, we make sure that we're in the right framework you know, people of people, but that's not what we ultimately trust in. That's not what we ultimately build our foundation on. We build our trust and our foundation upon God and his calling and his mission for us. And that is our primary foundation. Beautiful, beautiful leadership. Would you agree? Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you so much for this, this uh, section of scripture. We just, we just read from the greatest book on planet Earth, the Bible. And even though this is an old text, we're seeing things that apply to our lives today. And I'm just praying, Lord, that you would help us to become and to grow in our leadership. I pray that you would help us to learn how to talk less, listen more. I'm praying that you would help us, God, to to do the steps, to assess things, and to be adjustable. I'm praying, Lord, that you would make us good wall builders. And, Lord, that you would give us the grace... And the love to dismantle the bad ones and to know the difference. So, Lord, what a, good, what a good day. Lord, what a good passage. So I'm praying that you would just help us. Help us to understand how the gospel intertwines itself into these teachings, Lord. That, Jesus, you ultimately were the one to tear down the wall, the wall between us and God. and the, Between us and others. To unify us so that we could, as one church, just love you together. So Lord, we love you. We do so. We love you, Lord. And we thank you and we pray these things now in your beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.